Hello and welcome to Mending the Gap, your guide to women's mental health research. My name is Catherine Saunders and I will be your host. I'm a third year PhD student at the section of women's mental health at King's College London. In each episode, I'll be sitting down with the researchers themselves who are working to mend the gender gap in mental health research. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Karen Eyre, who will introduce us to perinatal mental health. We will also be discussing her own research, which uses a large electronic clinical record system called CRIS. It should be noted that Dr. Karen Eyre is funded by a National Institute of Health Research Doctoral Research Fellowship. Her work is independent research funded by the NIHR. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the NHS, the NIHR, or the Department of Health and Social Care. Please be aware that sensitive topics such as self-harm and suicide are discussed in detail in this episode. So hi Karen, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It's a real honour to have you here. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Could you tell me and listeners a little bit about your clinical and academic journey, the journey that really got you interested in perinatal mental health? Well, I'm from a pretty kind of mid-sized town in Scotland and I went to my local school there and I don't kind of come from a medical family really, but I was pretty interested in medicine um, from when I was young. I remember doing a school project on antibodies and like drawing the little antibodies inside the person and, you know, just thinking this was the coolest thing ever. So when I ended up thinking about uni and stuff, um, I applied to do medicine, uh, so I fancied a bit of change of scene. So um, I went down to Oxford to study that and I kind of got interested in psychiatry there really because I did a sort of neuroscience block as part of the, the kind of studying there, which I find really interesting. And then I got this amazing consultant during one of my psychiatry rotations who was really inspiring. And I think it's really important that, you know, the people that you meet throughout your kind of training can can really sort of change your views on things and, and inspire you. And he was, he was really fantastic. So after you leave medical school, you do something called the foundation programme, which is two years of kind of rotating around lots of different jobs as a a junior doctor And and the idea is to expose you to lots of different types of jobs so you kind of get an idea of what kind of thing you might want to do and specialize in um, and I did something called the Academic Foundation Programme, which is a scheme to support junior doctors who are kind of just starting out but think they probably want to combine a clinical career with academia. Um, and after that, I ended up sort of training to be a surgeon for a couple of years because I, I ended up loving the surgical jobs I did as part of my foundation programme. But I think eventually I decided to go back to my sort of first love, which was psychiatry, and I ended up specialising in that. I did a um, something called an Academic Clinical Fellowship, which is basically just another scheme to support um, clinical academics while they do what the kind of core bit of their specialist training is. Um, And that lasts three years. And then after that, I became a registrar working in London and I applied to do my PhD fellowship, which I'm currently doing full time. Wow, so interesting that you started as as a surgeon and came back to psychiatry. You never know. You never know (laughs) where life is going to take you. That's amazing. You're currently a perinatal psychiatrist, is that right? Well, so I'm currently um, a registrar, so that means I'm still training to become a consultant. 
And part of what happens when you register is that you rotate around lots of different jobs. But at the moment, I'm doing my PhD full time and I'm supervised um, by Professor Howard, who's a perinatal psychiatrist. And so that's the kind of area that I'm interested in. So I've been doing a little bit of um, clinical work during my PhD sort of in perinatal um, as well. And I think probably that's what I want to do sort of longer term. So your research is into perinatal mental health. Yeah. So tell us, what do we mean when we talk about perinatal mental health? So, I mean, perinatal is just like a fancy word that means around birth, basically. And in the NHS, perinatal mental health care is specialist mental health care for women who are pregnant and generally it lasts up to one year after the baby's born. Although there's actually been kind of recent moves to extend this to up to two years. But when we talk about perinatal mental disorders, it's important to think about what we mean by that. Because pregnancy is a major event in any woman's life and it brings with it this huge range of emotions and changes. You know, I feel like there's this kind of perception that having a baby is this kind of, you know, joyous, lovely time when you're sort of buying baby clothes and you're having, you know, gender real cake parties and stuff like that. But, you know, as well as joy and happiness, many women experience difficult emotions as well, like worry and sadness and fear. You know, thinking about labour can be scary or, you know, just thinking about being responsible for another person can be frightening. And you've got all the kind of social things on top of that, like worrying about money or your job or, you know, and all the physical things that happen to your body as well. So there's a lot going on at that time, kind of psychologically, socially and physically. And what's important is it's completely normal to experience a range of emotions and not all of them are necessarily pleasant. And experiencing unpleasant emotions doesn't necessarily mean that you have a perinatal mental disorder. However, having said that, sometimes the more difficult feelings affect the way that we actually function in life and they get in the way of us doing things that we want to do. And they can cause really quite marked distress. And and really, once you cross that line, that's really when you get into the territory of, of thinking, okay, this might actually be a mental disorder. There's no magic blood test that you can sort of take to see if you have a mental disorder as opposed to, you know, being within this sort of range of normal emotions. But it's about thinking really carefully about how your feelings are affecting your life and those around you. And it can become clear that for some women, there is something going on that is really affecting them. And the important thing is that there is loads of support and there is help that, that can really improve women's experiences and quality of life. I think it's really interesting that you talk about the sort of blurred line between what is effectively a sort of normal response to a massive mm. change in your life as, mm. as it would be if you got married or got divorced or mm-hmm. got a new job. Yeah, and, and this is definitely, it's a really key issue. And it doesn't, it's not just, um, you know, related to perinatal mental health. It's it's all mental health. That that question has sort of been raging on for forever. And, you know, what, what really constitutes a disorder? Because, you know, we're talking about observing symptoms and then, you know, giving them a name. But, you know, in some cases, the, the actual kind of how something develops is not 100% known. And it's about thinking, OK, well, what is the impact? What is what is this actually doing to me in terms of my life and my function? And, and that being the yardstick that we use to kind of determine whether or not, you know, something kind of needs to be needs to be done to help. And what kinds of perinatal mental disorders are there? 
I think probably the most well-known is um, postnatal depression. Um, I think probably quite a lot of people would be familiar with that term. But there's a whole range of disorders that women can experience that are actually rarely talked about. Things like OCD, PTSD, um, postpartum psychosis. You know, it can be that a woman has already have, had a mental disorder before she became pregnant. Either it's been ongoing or it got better and then perhaps, you know, she might have relapsed at that time. Or it can be things that start new, sort of during pregnancy and, and the year after. So we know if you take about a thousand pregnant women in a year, about 30 of them will have bipolar disorder, for example. About five will have schizophrenia. And there was a big study quite recently done by Professor Howard in South London where um, the team interviewed over 500 women in South London, so between 2014 and 2016. Using this kind of gold standard interview, they found that one in four of those women had mental illness. You know, not just depression, but anxiety, eating disorders, OCD, PTSD. One in four women. I mean, that is, that that's very common. So I think... These things often are just not talked about when, in fact, they're, they're going on all the time. So I think, you know, talking about things, and even though they can be incredibly difficult and it feels like you can, is really, really important because it can be very isolating. You know, you think that nobody else is going through what you're going through, but actually that's not the case. And pregnancy could add to that in that feeling of vulnerability. You're in such a moment of change, as you described at the beginning, physically and emotionally. Mm. And to, in that time, reach out for help could feel even harder than it would if you weren't pregnant. Definitely, because I mean, because of all these changes that happen, you've got this little person that's, that's dependent on you. And, you know, you're in a kind of unique, not everybody around you, all your friends are having babies at the same time. It can be, can feel like you're in this sort of other world. And it can be hard to think well, that someone might even understand what, what's going on because you're just in this kind of bubble. And it can be really difficult to to reach out and you know coupled with kind of sleep deprivation and you know everything else that you've got juggling and going on it's it's it can be a really tough time so your research that you're doing in your phd is on perinatal self-harm and suicide so what led you to be interested in these topics specifically well i kind of got interested in self-harm just through my clinical work just realizing how complex a topic it was and I just really wanted to understand more about it to try and be a better doctor really and I knew from my academic training I'd had that I wanted to do a PhD um, and I was kind of looking for a supervisor and um, I was put in touch with Professor Howard who's a perinatal psychiatrist and academic and we sort of talked a bit about self-harm and realised that there actually wasn't much research at all on perinatal self-harm and this was quite a new and sort of emerging area with quite a lot of evidence gaps so it seemed like quite an interesting and, and sort of exciting area to research and potentially kind of make make some difference in. When we use the phrase self-harm certain images probably appear to certain people as to what that means. But in this context, how would we be defining self-harm? So self-harm is, is essentially when somebody non-fatally but intentionally kind of damages or injures their body in some way. And you're right that it's a really, really complex topic and it doesn't mean the same thing to, to everybody. And it can be done for, for lots of different reasons. So it's usually a way of managing really overwhelming emotions or distress. Um, and some people self-harm 
with a feeling that on some level they want to die, that they want to end their life. But others don't have these feelings. And, for example, self-harm might be done to relieve unbearable tension or express unexpressible distress in some way. And people harm themselves in different ways, like cutting or burning or taking an overdose. So it's an incredibly complex topic and it can be defined in hundreds of different ways. And it doesn't mean the same thing to every person. So I think, you know, when we talk and research self-harm, it's really important to remember, you know, the kind of diversity of what it might mean clinically. I, I mean, it's it's a really important topic as well, you know, for a couple of reasons. We know that it's quite strongly associated with the presence of mental disorders. So it can indicate that someone might have symptoms that could benefit from treatment. So it could be something that is an opportunity to actually relieve some of that distress by kind of directing the person towards towards appropriate help. And we also know that someone who does self-harm is at higher risk of dying by suicide later on. So it's really important to think about how best to support someone to try and reduce that risk. And I'm interested, obviously, in women that self-harm during the perinatal period. And there's really not much known about self-harm during this time. We know, actually, know thinking about self-harm is quite common um, at this time, but we don't really know how common it is to actually act on those thoughts. Um, and a big chunk of my PhD has been kind of just reading the, the literature on, on perinatal self-harm and trying to bring it all together. And it's been really tricky partly because there aren't that many studies of it, but also because it's just a really difficult thing to actually measure. And I think one of the main reasons for that is probably despite all the progress that you know has been made in recent years, self-harm is still stigmatised and it's still something that many people find really hard to talk about. And perinatal mental health problems are also stigmatised. You know, I think women often worry about talking about them in case people you know might think it means they don't love their child or they might worry that someone might think they're an unfit mother in some way. And these kind of worries are incredibly painful and distressing. And, you know, they often prove barriers to women getting support that could really change their quality of life. So you can imagine perinatal self-harm, you, you're kind of potentially feeling that double whammy of stigma. So it's something that is really hard to talk about and therefore quite hard to measure in a research sense. Because um, even in a research questionnaire asking about it, you know, women may not want to talk about it. There are ways to look at how many people might present to hospital, for example, with self-harm. But we know that most people generally who self-harm don't actually present to hospital at the time. So if you can measure it that way, you, you're missing a big chunk of people in a way. So You would be capturing the most severe end of the self-harm rather than the less severe. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it's going to be a different population and you're going to be missing a big chunk of, of what's really going on. You mentioned the link between self-harm and suicide. Can you talk a little bit about suicide in perinatal women? What we would call a maternal death is a death of a woman either in pregnancy or one year after birth. And what we know is around one in nine of those maternal deaths are caused by suicide. So it's a leading cause of maternal death, both in this country and other high-income countries like Australia, for example. And we know that from confidential inquiry data, just to explain what that is, confidential inquiry, um, the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths is an initiative where if a maternal death happens, information about it is analysed by a group in the National Perinatal um, Epidemiology Unit. You know, they try and work out what 
and factors might have contributed and if there's any lessons that can be learned about potentially preventing these things happening in the future. So we know from looking at some of the data on, on these cases that in quite a significant proportion there was an episode of self-harm prior to the women dying. So what the thing about research is that we don't know if someone self-harms perinatally whether that necessarily increases their risk of later suicide. And the thing with research is ideally what you'd want to do is sort of take a group of pregnant and postnatal women, find out if they have experienced self-harm and then follow them up over time to kind of look at how common suicide is in that group. But the problem is when you're dealing with what is quite an uncommon event, so luckily maternal deaths are rare, you'd need like a really huge number of women to give yourself the statistical power to be kind of confident that once you'd followed them up, you know, you had the correct numbers and these findings were kind of generalisable to the, the, the wider population. You know, it is possible to recruit absolutely huge numbers of women to your study, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of resource. And like I mentioned earlier, researchers have tried to get around this by using, for example, big sort of often national registries of routinely collected data like hospital admissions. But some of the problems when you're dealing with a really complex or stigmatised issue like this or one, you know, where many people don't go to hospital is that you kind of miss people and that's kind of one of the limitations. And a limitation when the numbers are already quite small. Yeah. So if the numbers are small and then the reporting is even lower, yeah. you're dealing with really, really low numbers there. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about an ongoing project that you're working on and the methodologies around it because they are really, really interesting. So you're working with something called the CRIS database. And for those of us who don't know, could you tell us what the CRIS database is? Yeah, so, I mean, this project aims to try and get around some of the limitations that that I just mentioned um, by, you know, still getting a big sample size, but getting maybe more of the clinical nuance than you would get in a registry of sort of routinely collected data. So I'm using this database called CRIS, which stands for Clinical Record Interactive Search, and it's run through the um, National Institute of Health Research, Maudsley Biomedical Research Centre in South London. Basically... So if you access an NHS healthcare service nowadays, most services will record your notes electronically rather than on paper. And CRIS is a database that takes all these electronic healthcare notes and it de-identifies them so that researchers can extract information that is real clinical information, but without compromising the service user's identity. And there's a couple of CRIS databases in the country, but The one I'm using relates to people who use South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, which provides the kind of widest range of mental health NHS services in the UK. Obviously, really important to note that um, Chris has ethical approval and individual projects need further individual approval for them to go ahead. And there's very strict guidelines that can be reported using Chris data because obviously maintaining confidentiality is absolutely key. So, But the thing about it is that is this kind of source of data that's not just has the person gone to hospital or not it has rich information that would give you information that you you necessarily would be quite difficult to get from other sources on this scale. And how can you use the CRIS database to research perinatal self-harm and suicide? So CRIS is linked up with some other databases and one of those has details on hospital admissions and through this linkage we can find out how many um, SLAM service users had a baby in hospital. So this essentially generates a big group of women um, called cohort um, who we know were in contact with 
Islam, so we know had mental disorder during their perinatal period because we know they had a baby at that time. And it's also linked with another database that records information about deaths and causes of death, meaning we can follow the women in the cohort up and see how many cases of suicide there are in, in the group. So it's addressing that issue that you raised earlier about ideally we would have a group of pregnant women and we would find out their history of self-harm and then what happens next. Yeah, yeah. You're using something called natural language processing. So tell us a bit about this as simply as you possibly can. (laughs) I will try. So the thing about electronic, you know, a set of electronic notes is that if you want to measure, for example, how many women have a mention of self-harm in these notes. You can't sit and physically read thousands of women's medical records. That would take you years. You could do what you would do like in a Word document. If you're looking for a word, you do sort of control F and look for self-harm. But that is going to bring back documents, you know, for example, where it's written no self-harm or her friend self-harmed or she was thinking about self-harming rather than acts of self-harm. So natural language processing, NLP, is a way of programming a computer to sift out those mentions that you're not interested in. So sift out all the negations and like the references to someone else. So you can be confident that the number that you're left with accurately represents the true kind of prevalence in the cohort. And this involves developing and writing a program that is you know, specifically tailored to doing this task that, that you want the computer to do. And I've been so lucky enough to collaborate with Dr. Andre Bittar, who is a kind of informatician and NLP specialist at the Biomedical Research Centre that Chris is located in. There is absolutely no way I would be able to do this on my own. So (laughs) (laughs) I am not a techie person. So this is far removed from what, you know, I thought I'd end up doing when I went to medical school. But it's it's fascinating and it is kind of pushing the boundaries of um, self-harm research. So if anyone listening is thinking of applying to do medicine and they're a bit worried about getting sort of pigeonholed into a job that isn't sort of like diverse enough, you don't, don't worry because you might end up doing something you never thought you would do. It could happen. Um, so yeah, just, just go for it if you're thinking about it. Does it allow for, you use the example there of control F, self-harm, is there a way to look for things that maybe aren't so explicitly written down? So there might be something that indicates a particular behaviour or something along those lines. Is there a way to use natural language processing to detect that? You need to be quite specific about what it is that you're looking for, because the first thing you need to do is come up with a list of synonyms. So the first thing we, we did was come up with like a list of you know alternative terms that someone might use to mean self-harm. And... As I said before, it's an incredibly complex area, so that list was very long. <laughs> so, And then you have to sort of build rules around what aspects of each mention are important to you that the, the computer would kind of filter out. So is it important to f- filter out negations, for example, or is it important to figure out the timing of, of what happened, like when it happened? You know, I'm not an NLP specialist, so I'm probably better ask Andre this than me, but um, you have to be very specific from the outset about what it is you want it to look for. And I think it is only going to do what you ask it to do. As long as you're specific enough and you have a kind of reasonably coherent list of synonyms, you know, I think it is is definitely a technique that's, you know, applicable to other concepts. It's not, you know, it's not self-harm specific. It's being used, you know, hundreds of other kind of um, contexts. 
it's striking that balance of inclusivity and exclusivity yes of you know we need to keep all of the we need to make sure that our list of synonyms is as inclusive as possible to make sure that we capture it all, but not so inclusive that we are capturing too much yeah, exactly. irrelevant stuff. Yeah, definitely. So, for example, um, as I mentioned, one of the synonyms for self-harm might be overdose, which is sometimes shortened to OD. But something that also is also shortened to OD in medical notes is once daily, when you talk about medication being taken. So, you know, take... 10 milligrams once daily OD. So if you include that synonym, it's going to bring back all these mentions of just people's medication. So it's about also, you know, doing error analysis. Once you, it's, a, it's an iterative process, basically. You do it and then you, you find these things like this OD thing that I'd never considered before. And you think, oh, okay, so we're going to have to think of a way to get around this and think of a rule to write around this. So it's it's definitely like a trial and error process and there's no perfect way to kind of do it from the outset. But that's why it takes time and you know meticulous kind of going through all these cases and thinking you know is there any way I can make this better Um, and it's never going to be perfect it's never going to be as good as just reading someone's notes but then you're never going to be able to read thousands of people's notes so it's it's quite a compromise and you want to try and get the best out of both situations really. It's a way of making the data set usable for the questions that you're asking isn't it? Yeah. We've touched upon this about the issues in this area, in research in this area, and the benefits of working with a big data set. But if you had to pick sort of the key benefits of working with a big data set like Chris, what would they be? I mean, I think, I mean, Chris doesn't necessarily get you a big data set. It depends what your inclusion criteria for the cohort are. But to get a data set of the size that mine is wouldn't be possible for me without Chris. And I think... Like we sort of said, when you're dealing with uncommon exposures and uncommon outcomes, it's so important to try and get as big a sample size as you can. I mean, in any research, you you want as big a sample size as you can, because that's going to increase the likelihood that what you're seeing isn't a fluke thing and and really truly is a kind of representation of what might be going going on in the population. But also said something that you mentioned is important is feasibility as well. You you need to be able to actually manage. There's no point having a huge data set and not being able to manage it or analyse it. So I think it's really just why research planning is so important, not a case of kind of thinking, oh, well, I might just pitch up to, to Chris and see see if I can use that. It's kind of thinking through, like, what, what realistically, numbers-wise, am I going to end up with? Am I going to be able to manage it? And is it going to be enough to circumvent some of these limitations that might otherwise be there? What are the potential implications of your research? Well, it'd be really interesting to know what, the prevalence of self-harm is amongst perinatal women who are known to have mental disorder, particularly using this novel measure, and understand then what kinds of disorders women who self-harm might have could really help us understand how best to support these women. And it'd also be really interesting to know what the prevalence of suicide is in, in the cohort and when most suicides occur, because this might help pinpoint kind of when support for women is most needed. And then finally, kind of understanding whether women who do die by suicide differ from women who don't is also important because this could help us stratify risk in clinical services, potentially identify women who might be at higher risk. At its most fundamental, you're talking about prevalences, which is essentially how common Mm. is this outcome in this population. So is I mean, that's something that we actually don't really know. And that's a really important thing to find out because we can't possibly provide 
effective services or effective interventions for people if we don't even know how many people are suffering from it. Yeah, so it's really important for service provision. Um, and I think it's also important in terms of just awareness as well. Like the study that I mentioned earlier about women for women having perinatal mental disorder, you know, that that's important to know because it makes people feel less alone if it, you know you're aware that it's not just you that is happening to other people and if someone was listening to this episode and was really interested what resources would you recommend for them to have a look at to learn a little bit more if you're interested in perinatal stuff and the nhs website is always a really good place to start if you just google nhs mental health problems and pregnancy there's a page on that the maternal mental health alliance is a fantastic charity that's done a lot of work in um, raising awareness about perinatal mental health problems and trying to improve service provision um, across the country and the initiative i mentioned earlier about confidential inquiry data those reports are available online as well so if you google confidential inquiry into maternal deaths and um, they have a website with loads of information on it and so have pdfs of the reports and um, so those those are good places to start i think Finally, it's really important to say that this episode we have touched on some really difficult topics. So what organisations would you recommend to anybody listening for support if someone has been affected by anything that we've covered? You're absolutely right. Um, Some of the things we've discussed have been some of the things that are the hardest things to talk about um, and people might feel are impossible to talk about. But the most important thing... I feel I could say is that if you are affected, please, please talk to someone. You know, I know it can seem impossible, but there are health professionals there whose job is to to listen and to provide support. And there is lots of support there. You know, whether it be your GP, your midwife, health visitor, whatever, please, please consider um, speaking to someone. The Samaritans are there 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And their number is free and won't show up on a phone bill. Um, And there's some great online resources. So Mind is um, a charity which has loads of information, both they've got pages on self-harm and suicide and perinatal mental disorders. And there's lots of other fantastic organisations. Pandas Foundation, which is pre- and postnatal depression advice and support, Action on Postpartum Psychosis, Maternal OCD, Tommy's Baby Charity. And there's actually a really nice quote on the Maternal OCD website. It says, um, there is no way to be a perfect mother and a million ways to be a good one and I think that's really important as well because I think sometimes it can feel like you're not doing things right and you know you want to be everyone wants to be perfect and they want to do the best they can but nobody is perfect and there is no perfect way of doing anything particularly not when it comes to perinatal stuff so there is lots of support out there and lots of people are going through what you might be going through so please talk to someone great Thank you, Karen. This has been such an important topic to cover and what a joy to cover it with you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So there we have it, a fascinating insight into perinatal mental health research. Thank you again to Karen for joining me and talking us through the basics of perinatal mental health and the intricacies of her own research too. The resources for support suggested by Karen can be found in the show notes for this episode. Please do rate and review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MendTheGapPod and join the conversation using hashtag MendingTheGap. We'll be back with a brand new episode very soon. Thank you for listening.